and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to thedispatch.com to check out our wares and um, hopefully become a uh, paid member of the Dispatch community. So, um, it's Thursday morning. I'm recording this from uh, my uh, dear mother's uh, lair, I think is a good word for where my mom lives at these days. And... Um, uh, and we decided that since I'm on the road and all these kinds of things and whatnot, we should go with the solidity and reliability of, of a remnant fan favorite. Um, also, I wanted to counteract the heavy, heavy libertarian influence of the first remnant of this week with um, Alex Tabarak. And so I figured I should lean the other way towards a conservative um but equally reasonable and lastly i really just wanted everyone's remnant podcast bingo cards to burst into flames when they find out that yuval Levin is in fact on the podcast rather than just mentioned on it so yuval uh, uh my 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 fearless leader at the american enterprise institute author of many wonderful books uh some of which i've reviewed wonderfully um uh welcome back to the remnant thank you very much for having me it's great to be back i i always enjoy offsetting libertarians <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, you know, it's not like tomorrow. I mean, it's it's weird, and I'm sure you've experienced this. There are libertarians who are who have pretty much the exact. I don't know if you listen to the the Alex yeah. podcast, okay? But there are libertarians who have almost the exact same positions, but when they explain them, they sound crazy, mm-hmm. and <laughs> when Alex explains them, they sound reasonable, and um. And I Almost don't know, reasonable. The open borders yeah, yeah. thing. I, I was, I was, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I'm with, I mean, like, <laughs> he sounds like a reasonable person who's yep. just gone a little too far on this thing about getting rid of borders. And, um, um, but, and, you know, when, and when he retreats to the, let's triage this and do the doable before as a first, right. as baby steps towards open borders, you're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, well, anyway, before we, why don't we just sort of start there? I hadn't planned on starting there, but um, he made, I think, as good a case as a libertarian, as a person can make against borders, um, given the limited time that we had um, to discuss it, because I do think it's basically crazy. But um, why don't you make the case for borders? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I, I think nations are real. They are they are social realities, and a lot of um, what makes a society worth living in has to do with a kind of civic identity and a meaning of citizenship that, among other things, has to mean that the people who live in a society should have some say about what the rules are for new people moving in. Um, I think those rules should be welcoming. I'm an immigrant. I was born in Israel. My family came when I was a child. I love this country. It, it, in in part because of how welcoming it is, and it it was amazingly welcoming to us, and I think it should be to others. But that should be a choice that people in this country make, and I think it's vitally important that there be 
national boundaries, uh, and that those boundaries are connected in some ways to to national character, which is also a very real thing. Um, I agree that national character is a real thing. Is there how to put this? Is there any hope left of teaching national character or inculcating national character? Or is in some ways that a waste of time and effort because you kind of get it through the water? Yeah, I, I think we are always inculcating national character. And if you ask foreigners whether there is such a thing as an American national character, they will not have trouble answering yes. There clearly is. Or if you just run into an American abroad after having been abroad for a, a few weeks, you'll realize we have a lot in common, even though right. we don't have that much in common. Um, I do think that it's worth thinking about how to teach that. Um, and it's a matter of teaching who we are. So it's a matter of teaching civics and history. Um, I think that it's also a matter of teaching w- what it is to be an American citizen as a practical matter. Um, I think it is worth serious thought about what history we teach, what we convey to the rising generation about our society. But ultimately, most of that teaching is going to happen in practice. It's not going to be what you learn in school, but what you do and see other people doing and how Americans live. Um, And, you know, I, I think that an essential piece of the national character that we teach every rising generation has to do with how we live with difference in a, in a massively diverse society. And that's always been true in our country from the very beginning. And I think in that sense, our political culture teaches lessons, good or bad. And it's why we have to worry about culture. Part of what it is to be a conservative is to think that we should always worry about what we're teaching the rising generation through the culture, because every generation starts from scratch, not from where its parents left off. And, you know, we have to care about culture. Part of that is national character. There's no, there's no separating them. And so since you, so we got, since we, uh, through, uh, the Hayekian process of trial and error arrived at this point without any, uh, advanced planning. Um, I was supposed to write the G, the Wednesday G file yesterday because of all sorts of travel screw ups, picking up my daughter from the airport. It's sitting on my computer. So by the time people listen to this, it'll have been out. Uh, but you haven't read it or anything like that. Um, uh, there was this debate that sort of percolated, that bounced around a little bit on the interwebs, began by Kevin Drum. I don't know if you saw this, where he basically made the case that liberals started the culture war. And uh, then Peggy Noonan picked up on it, wrote a Wall Street Journal column, basically yeah. you know, recycling a lot of Drum's argument. And then... Uh, our friend Tim Miller, uh, writing over at the Bulwark, made this case that, um, no, 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 it's the conser- it's it's Republicans, and um, I don't need to get too deep in the weeds. I think he's just profoundly wrong on a bunch of levels, but uh, we can stipulate that there are a bunch of Republicans saying dumb and cartoonish things right now, right? I mean, I don't think you would disagree with that too vociferously. Right. Um, That's an evergreen. But- Yes, but it, it, it's greener than normal, right? Um, this is Fair a spri- springtime of asininity in many ways going on. <laughs> and um, uh, unless you think, unless you agree with Madison Cawthorn that, in fact, subsidizing uh, people to go door to door explaining how you can get vaccinated is just a trial run to seize our guns and our Bibles. Um, yep. Okay, so that said, um, 
part of my argument is uh, that it's sort of transparently obvious, depending on whenever you want to start the culture war, uh, start dating this, whether it's sort of Pat Buchanan, 1992, with the Republican Convention, James Davis and Hunter's 1991 book on culture wars, or you want to go back to Bismarck and the culture comp for Auguste Comte. I mean, you can pick your place. It just seems to me axiomatically true that progressives sort of or go back to, as you would in your wonderful book, The Great Debate, to Thomas Paine versus Edmund Burke. If you are on the side of moving the wheel f- of history forward, of advancing through a science or a mass movement of politics to transform society, whether your attempted transformations are good or bad is a different argument. It is just obviously true that in most cases, the people from that point of view are going to be the aggressors in, in, in cultural transformation and the people who oppose it are going to be on defense, which means that they didn't start it. And I mean, is that basically right, would you say? Yeah, I, I mean, almost by definition, you, you'd have to say that if you line up the, the life of a culture into progressive and conservative and think about who's the aggressor, it's, it's very likely to be the progressive side. They're trying to change the social order. Um, I think that's certainly true in what we would call the culture war. There are periods where you might say that one side or another is is the aggressor on a particular issue. But I think as a general matter, surely it's the case that the left is trying to change the social order, whether for the better or for the worse, we can argue about, but that's what they're aiming to do. And the right at some level is trying to defend some idea of what the social order is or has been. I do think there's a way there's always been a tension in the American right over the question of whether we are the insiders or the outsiders in American society. And in moments where we take ourselves to be the insiders, we are all the more on the defense. And in moments where we take ourselves to be the outsiders, we are sometimes aggressors in something like a culture war. We're trying to overturn a social order. I think this is a moment where the right takes itself to be the outsider to an exceptional degree um, and where we, even more than just defending the institutions from the people who run them, which is usually how the right has tried to solve this problem, defending the university from the professors, defending the constitution from the judges, I think the right, a lot of the right is in a moment now where it is hostile to the institutions to the universities and to the constitution in some ways uh, and to corporations and to the core uh, elite institutions of American life more than usual and more than even in most populist moments for the right. And in that sense, there is a kind of tone of aggression to some of the rhetoric of the right. But I think if you look at the actual substance of what people are arguing about, it's still the case that there are conservatives here and there are progressives here. And I think the left is much more the aggressor in our time on the cultural issues and feels the wind at its back and thinks that it's got the right on the run, which in some ways is true and in some ways not. Uh, you know, it, you can ask all kinds of questions about this, but I think if, if the question is who is the aggressor, I, 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 looking at the last 20 years, it's, it would be very hard to say that the right has been the aggressor in the culture war. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, I, again, I, I don't really see how it's a, very much of a debatable point from the 30,000-foot level. I mean, you're right. On individual issues, at individual moments, you know, if you're doing, if you're launching a counterattack 
and someone comes into the walks upon the scene like in the middle of a movie, they might think the counterattack is right. the exactly. initial charge kind of thing. But and I, I think you make a good point about you know conservatives seeming to be outsiders these days because there is a certain air of they've been cleared out of their fortifications and their bunkers. And so now the conservatives are trying to retake the castle, as it were, in a lot of cases. But I have a, I was, so I have a slightly different point, though, that I wanted to get to, which is that um, I agree with Tim Miller's, you know, exasperation with a lot of the performative nonsense going on, particularly in, you know, in the Ohio primary and um, with the CPAC crowd and whatnot. But without making allowances for that or forgiving in that or confusing explanations for excuses or any of that kind of stuff. I do think that one of the things that Tim and a lot of people on the left don't grasp is that when the left controls the commanding heights of the culture, and we should say, by the way, when we talk about aggressor here, we are not inherently saying it in a pejorative sense, right? I mean, the left was a was the aggressor on the civil rights issue in the 1960s and they were right. Um, directionally mm -hmm. right and so um we're just saying the initiator or the instigator or right. the you know whatever the driver um yeah i mean the question as kevin drum put it is is a useful way to put it which is who is moving further has the left moved left more than the right has moved right in this period and i i think the answer is yes the left's moved left more than the right's moved right right okay so anyway, the, the point i want to get to is i want to ask you about is i think one explanation for why the republican party is i mean put trump aside is going so crazy is that there's an asymmetry between left and right when it comes to the culture war. Hollywood, academia, the helping professions, the new class, publishing, journalism, these things are controlled culturally by the left. They provide, uh, they normalize and legitimize crazy stuff that Democrats say so that it doesn't seem like Democrats are saying crazy things, even though birthing person and, um, defund the place are just as crazy. A lot of the things that right wingers say, but if, if they're all covered as like normal, this, this should launch a Frank conversation stuff. They're, they're not tagged that way in the, our consciousness. Yeah. And so if everything, if, if, if everything in the cultural soup is controlled by one side, the only institutions that are left for a lot of conservative or right wing people are Fox news and its imitators and the Republican party. And so all of the cultural pushback that should be taking place in academia, in Hollywood, in publishing is being harnessed and intensified and purified and you're channeled through the Republican Party. And so the Republican Party is having to do culture war fights because no other institutions are and there's a market for it. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think there's something to that. I, I would say the, the danger you run into in a situation like that is that the institutions that you do control or, or run become purely oppositional or critical. Right. They're just about the other side. And so the, you know, conservative media becomes media criticism. Um, and in a sense, our politics can just become excessively obsessed with the left. Now, in a, in a, in a two-party politics, each party is going to be pretty obsessed with the other. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just, it's unavoidable. But I do think that there's a sense in which the right now, and, and in part also because we operate in these echo chambers where we're talking to people who are already persuaded most of the time, um, the, the, 
the, the right is not saying much to the country about what it wants to do for the country. It is saying a lot about what it fears from the left and what the left is doing to it. And I think that's a very ineffective way to practice politics. Um, and that it's not likely to be persuasive to people who are persuadable but not already persuaded. And that's part of the reason why the right has had such trouble breaking through. And the left does the same thing. And they're both, uh, they're, they're both essentially 50% parties, in part because neither of them is really able to take its eyes off the other and talk about the, the condition of the country or the challenges that affect actual people. I think a lot of this has to do with what we now tend to think of and describe as the culture war. Um, but it, it, it strikes me as being in large part an effect of just not being able to take our eyes off the other party. And that that's really a, a kind of definitive characteristic of this moment in American politics. Each party thinks the other is the country's biggest problem. And the thing to be solved is that the other party has some shred of power. And therefore, the next election is decisive because it will decide who's in power for a while. Um, and our politics is just incredibly devoid of, of substance, of not even public policy, but much discussion about the future. And I think all these things are linked with this kind of... Um, inability to break the, the the stranglehold that the other party has on our attention and on our kind of mind space, we end up calling that culture war because it isn't politics in, in a traditional sense. But it, it's not just culture war. I mean, I think the, the two parties are stuck in these trenches in a way that has now been a problem for quite a while. And that if they want to win actual majorities and not just 50.1% majorities, um, they really have to think about it. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm in violent agreement on this. In that, if you allow, you know, it's sort of it's sort of like the logic of being a stalker. You know, it goes from, you know, what's the thing they used to say to you? The opposite of love isn't hate; it's indifference. Because whether you love someone or hate someone, you're basically letting them define who you are. And the the obsession with owning the libs or or being the opposite, whatever they say, like. This Alex Berenson thing at CPAC, I mean, I hate giving him any more attention, but I, I, I'm still trying to parse, you know, he says the Biden administration thought it could sucker 90% of Americans into getting vaccinated and they failed and the audience burst into applause. It's like, it's like diagramming sentences in grade school. Who's being suckered? I mean, like what, what, yeah. like, I, haha, we got you to protect yourselves from a disease. Um, I don't get it. And I don't yeah. get, I, I don't, the only way that makes sense is if you think it's a zero something. And if they do well, we do poorly. And yeah. And we had a kind of proof of concept of this around vaccines because the process started with one party in power and ended with the other party in power. Yeah. And, and the argument sort of switched sides. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, w w how did we get this vaccine? It was a huge investment made by the Trump administration. The notion that it's now understood as some kind of a, I mean, look, there's, there, there's so many layers of, of crazy in, in the argument here, but that it's taken to be a conspiracy of the Biden administration is, is just proof that there's nothing here but partisanship all the way down. Yeah. 
All right, so let's um switch gears ever so slightly. Um, I am very frustrated with the argument about democracy these days. And um, I don't think you could go a day in the last couple months without someone, including the president of the United States, saying that uh, Jim Crow is back. And I got into a spat with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones about this on Twitter. And um, uh, this idea, if you're, if you're saying that, that drive, that getting rid of 24-hour voting and drive-through voting brings us back to Jim Crow, then you're basically saying America was in Jim Crow up until 2018 and that during Jim Crow, we elected the first black president, (laughs) which is hard for me to get my head around. Um, This is not to say that everything Republicans are doing at the state level with voting is, has my approval or anything like that, but none of it amounts to legally sanctioned lynching or apartheid or any of these sorts of things. Um, Do you think this is just simply a moral panic or is this what it looks like for Democrats to have, is this the Democrats vaccine thing? where they're just, they're seeing what they want to see rather than what's really there. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a mix. I think there's a real problem. And the real problem is that the public is being encouraged to lose trust in our election system. Um, th- that is the problem. I, I don't think there actually is much of a problem with the election system. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it, it, it's easier to vote than it's ever been in America. And there's very little fraud. And we have a lot to be proud of. The election system got through the last election, which was very challenging in a lot of ways, uh, with flying colors. Um, and so, and yet at the same time, both parties are telling their most devoted constituents not to trust the election system unless their favored bills pass. If this doesn't pass, then our elections are unreliable, illegitimate. That's the problem. And I think that the each party is, is essentially incapable of seeing that the other is doing the same thing. And they both think that the other is attacking democracy. I think this is very hard for Democrats in particular to see that, and you've made this point too, that, that w- what a lot of Republicans are saying, not all, but a lot, who are complaining about election shenanigans, is actually offered as a kind of defense of democracy from what right. they take to be a threat to democracy. I think they, they have their facts wrong for reasons that run very deep to kind of partisan conspiracies, but they aren't attacking democracy. That's not true. Also, th- these, these bills in the states just aren't undermining access to the ballot. It's, it's just, it's, it's bonkers how they're being understood. Um, if you actually look at the legislation in Georgia or in Texas, I don't think these laws are necessary. I, I am opposed to them because I think they seek to address a problem that does not exist and in the process are encouraging people to mistrust the elections by believing that this problem does exist. But they're not going to have a significant effect on who can vote. They're just not. I think there's a bigger problem with some of these bills that they empower state legislatures to have very bizarre roles after the election is over. That's the more worrisome thing to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a novelty. We don't know what that will look like as a practical matter. 
Um, and it's not a good idea. And again, it's not necessary. It's, there's not a problem there to solve. So I worry about what the bills do in that sense. I think what the Democrats are talking about it just isn't there. I mean, the notion that this is an effort to prevent people from voting, whatever bills you look at, and there's a reason people only talk about Georgia and Texas, because the others do even less than that. Um, and very few of these bills are passing. You know, there, there are more than 100,000 legislative proposals in state legislatures every year. And so we're, we constantly hear there's 80 bills moving to change elections. Well, that's, that doesn't actually mean there's a lot going on. But I think what the, what the bills that are moving actually do is, for the most part, reverse some and not even all of the election law changes that were made to make it easier to vote during a pandemic. And th- the Democrats have just lost touch with the reality of what's happening here. And the bill they want to advance, you know, particularly HR1 or S1, strikes me as even more damaging along the same line because yeah. it would tell people all over the country that Democrats in Congress are taking over their state's election administration. And that surely will encourage people to mistrust the elections. So everybody just needs to back off from the election system. And I think there is just a kind of mirror effect of, of conspiracism. And again, it's this certainty that the other party is out to destroy the country. Um, and, you know, in, increasingly, each party responds to that by, by making the other's charge against it more and more true. Um, and I, I want to warn listeners that shortly we're going to be moving into the um, uh, moving out of rank punditry into rank eggheadery. And uh, you should, you know the children in the car and whatnot. But um, uh, I don't know how much of this is reported. I just know this from conversations with people, so I'm going to be a little vague about it. But the one of the ironies in this is that this whole push for Republicans to tackle voter and election integrity was intended as a strategic matter by a lot of people in the GOP to distance themselves from Trump is to give them some other thing to talk about that's that signal to the base we're taking your absolutely cockamamie theories about the election being stolen seriously by rearranging some chairs around the table over here about you know restricting about reforming elections and i think that this was a very bad idea because yeah. instead it fed into this idea like every single report on this, every, almost every single New York Times thing, every single MSNBC thing begins with some sort of construction. Republican state legislators in, in an attempt to build upon the big lie, blah, 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 when in fact the intent was to, to give some, them something other than the big lie to talk about. And I think it just utterly backfired. But yeah, it, it was too clever by half. I mean, if you listen to what some of the people who supported the challenges to the election on January 6th were saying on the floor in, in the House and Senate, that's what they were saying. They were trying to say, we, we can have, you know, we can look at these things and, uh, and I'm not saying the election was stolen. And, you know, as a practical matter, there's just no way to make that kind of argument make sense in the world. I mean, sometimes you just have to deal with reality and say, no, this didn't happen. The election's over. And they looked for a clever way to not have to say that and got the worst of both worlds. I mean, they ended up doing a, a worse form of what they were trying to avoid doing. Yeah. And 
So I, and this is sort of the segue into more of the eggheadery stuff. I think one of the things that makes this even harder in more in our world than in sort of day-to-day political journalism is there is this other conversation going on or other conversations going on there in uh, intellectual conservatism that actually is somewhat hostile. They never say they're hostile to democracy that often, um, but they're hostile to liberalism, classical liberalism, the liberal yeah. order, um, all these kinds of things. Adrian Vermeule, Saurabh, Deneen, there are different flavors of it in different places. Um, and if I were a left-wing writer observing the right, I would see those conversations and not have a very difficult time connecting the dots to what's going on in politics and say, no, they actually do dislike um, uh, democracy. And, um, and, then there are, you know, and then there are people like uh, uh, Joshua Tate, who had that piece a while back about mm-hmm. how conservatives have always had a problem with democracy. Um, I've written a bit about how I just profoundly, how I think he's just got it wrong. Um, but I'm just wondering, as for a traditional conservative in the in the Nashian narrative, right? The 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 William F. Buckley to in the in the spectrum from Friedrich Hayek to William F. Buckley that we grew up in, um, that sees Burke as sort of the Fonz et Erigio of all of our stuff. Um, what is the proper mainstream intellectual conservative orientation and attitude towards democracy? Well, it's a complicated question, but I would say that American conservatism inclines to a kind of republicanism, a small r republicanism, which is favorable to democracy, essentially as whether you want to say the 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 least worst option, the uh, a a means to social peace, um, an element of a larger system, which is not simply democratic. But, but does gain its legitimacy from its democratic character. Um, I think conservatism has always been a mix of, uh, of elitism and populism. And that means that, and I mean always, I mean, if you look at Burke, you find both of these things in it. And his attitude about democracy is very complicated. I mean, you can find, uh, you know, you can find lines about uh, the swinish multitude, um, but there's also a defense of public judgment and he ran for office every two years for his entire adult life. Um, he, he, you know, he took part in a, in, in a kind of democracy and at the how end of the 18th he, century. How did he do with the swine vote? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are, I mean, there's this famous line of Burke's that the representative owes the public his judgment and not his, uh, and not his assent that he's not a delegate what's less often said is that he lost the next election. Um, (laughs) He said that in a speech to his voters and he lost his seat in Bristol and his party valued him enough to give him another seat in Beaconsfield that he kept for the rest of his life. But you know, the, 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 the the pressures of electoral politics um, are not, are not new in, in the way conservatives think about uh, the lives of free societies. I I would say that, this is true of the left as well. There is a mix of populism and elitism on the left too. I think American progressives have always had the peculiar attitude that 
if the public had its way, it would choose leftist technocratic government, mm-hmm. which isn't true and doesn't even make any sense. Um, but that's always been the peculiar kind of progressive populism. So it wants more and more extreme democracy under the impression that that w- will result in the empowerment of uh, progressive expertise. Um, I, I don't think conservatives have really been under that kind of impression, although there is a sense underlying any kind of populist politics that if the public could really choose, it would choose us. And that's the silent um, majority logic, right? Yeah. 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 And, I, I, you know, you always find that at the bottom of any populist movement. It's rarely true, right? In America, it's probably never true. I mean, the, 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 the American public on the whole is, in fact, impressively modest and moderate and doesn't, isn't all that impressed by the right or the left, um, at least not all the way. But I, I, I think that the, the argument that Tate made um, is, a, is a reading of a certain kind of, well, it, it's a reading of the history of National Review, let's say. Mm-hmm. I think the American right is more than that. Um, and that bringing in some of the argument about democracy and the argument about the character of conservatism, bringing in the neoconservatives in the 70s and the rest of the larger story would complicate that narrative some. But I also think it's ultimately wrong about today's debate, um, right. which isn't really about democracy. I mean, it just isn't. Um, the argument is the public actually wanted Donald Trump. I think that's an argument that's divorced from reality, but it's not hostile to democracy, at least not in principle. Yeah, if you watch that New York Times video, which I think every American should, at least once, I don't think you should do what um, Claire McCaskill suggested, uh, that her family had a new tradition that every 4th of July they were going to watch it, which struck me as odd. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) but uh you should watch it once and you know and over and over again you have people chanting you know uh you know pro-democracy slogans because they think i mean they're they're and i want to be generous about this they're dupes to think that democracy that we're fighting for democracy um i particularly like i don't know if you saw this one of the leaders of one of the guys who was charged with organizing and leading all of this stuff was uh, was let off the hook by the judge for that charge because the judge literally found he was too ignorant and stupid to have been able to do it because they actually released video of him putting his hand on the Capitol saying, this is why I'm here to storm the White House. And <laughs> you know, if you don't know which building you're storming, it's probably a good sign that you're not organizing a, a siege. But anyway, um, they all were chanting, you know, all this stuff about democracy. And I think that that's the problem is that this is a bottom up populism thing, not a pro pro democracy, anti democracy thing. Um, now, there is a way of, of understanding the term democracy, which is a little more like liberalism um, or even republicanism, which is a system of government that values the rule of law um, and draws its legitimacy from the consent of the governed. And, you know, in that sense, these are challenges to democracy, right? But that's a a view of democracy that I would describe as a kind of classical liberalism, or even in some ways, a small-r republicanism, which, which cares about 
the democratic institutions, but also the less than democratic institutions, which insist that there are some things that have to be beyond the reach of majorities in a free society, and that there have to be ways of channeling majority sentiment and creating cross-cutting constituencies and electorates. The Constitution is not simply friendly to majority rule. It is very much aware of the dangers uh, that can result from that and creates all kinds of institutions so that we can still draw legitimacy from consent, but also protect the country from the effects of pure democracy. And, you know, I think that kind of complicated uh, liberal Republican system of government um, is under threat by some of these kinds of attitudes. But in a sense, it's under threat from extreme democracy, not from anti-democracy, at least in this moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I sent you this article a while ago by Will Herberg. He wrote it for the New Statesman a long time ago. Yep. He calls it politics of rabble rousing. And he was referring at the time to McCarthy. Um, but, you know, he goes back to Caesar and the bloody toga and, and or Mark Antony and the bloody toga. Um, it's this stuff that we've talked about a lot that's in your book about institutions a lot. Um, that the second you get rid of the peer to peer, non-transparent smoke-filled room stuff and you do everything about inflaming a crowd to put pressure on your interlocutor rather than persuading your interlocutor um you get ugly politics and the founders yeah. were very well aware of the po the history of rabble rousing and that's why they set up the system the way they did yeah and i mean you know it's a mix of of that of that side of the system that's aware of that danger with democracy. I mean, there is, you know, the, the Constitution of the United States was ratified in what was up to that time the most democratic election process the world had ever seen. The, 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 the states that had limits on suffrage uh, relaxed those limits and allowed essentially all free men to vote on ratification of the Constitution. Now, that's still a limited suffrage, but as I say, up to that time, there had never been a more democratic process than the one that adopted the Constitution. And yet the Constitution was written in a closed room um, under a vow of silence. And there's just a recognition that sometimes both of these things are necessary in combination to have a, a government that's uh, both legitimate and representative. That's the, that's the challenge we've had ever since. Yeah, but one, I mean, one of the things you're overlooking is they didn't have drive-through voting. And so therefore, it's all illegitimate. Um, actually, I think, you know, Alex Tabarak's point about the reason why he likes democracy, and it's funny how libertarians can get away with these kinds of statements, um, is just because it's a check on despotism and dictatorship. And other than that, we shouldn't have a lot of collective decision making. I think there's a lot to that. Um, and particularly when you look at it's, it's an interesting way of coming at a lot of your stuff from a different angle. Yeah, but you know, I I disagree with him entirely. I, I I think that the the reason to value representative democracy is that it offers a way to resolve disputes peacefully. Um, there are other reasons, but a prime reason, uh, or the, one of the major reasons why Congress is valuable, and it's worth asking why Congress is valuable because it's not self evident <laughs> most of the time. Is that it allows for differences to be negotiated, to be worked out, bargained through in a genuinely representative institution. The 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 danger in the progressive argument that it's the president who's representative of the society, the 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 
you know, cue the ominous music Woodrow Wilson argument <laughs> that the president alone represents the whole of society because only he is elected by a national electorate, I think is exactly wrong. It's Congress that's truly representative. The president is singular because to execute, you have to be one person. An executive really has to be an individual. But a representative a representative institution in a society like ours has to be a plural assembly. Um, and democracy is enormously valuable because it allows people to see legitimacy in decisions that they would not themselves have made, to have participated in a process and therefore see that the result is legitimate, even if the result is not what they would have wanted, is an extraordinary achievement of representative democracy. And I think there's much more to that than just restraining the will of tyrants, there's real value in in creating a, creating legitimacy and allowing people to see that legitimacy by uh, allowing for participation and engagement and bargaining and accommodation. And ultimately, that's what Congress is really for. It's why it's at the center of our system. That's not simply democratic. It, it's not just putting everything up for uh, for for a vote and letting fifty percent plus one rule. There are all sorts of other rules around it that protect minorities, which is hard to do in a majoritarian system, precisely so that they have a sense that the outcome is legitimate. And I think that's the real accomplishment of, of, of a functional democracy. No, I, I think that's all fair. And I agree with that what I was I, I was getting at was his example about homeowners, homeowners associations that. Right. Right. That when, um, uh, you know, and again, I, I've gotten so much of my institution stuff from you that I don't know what's an original thought to me anymore. But, you know, this point I often make about how, you know, in a democracy for a thriving democracy in the, in the liberal democracy sense to sustain democracy, you need a lot of institutions to be internally undemocratic. Mm -hmm. Uh, You would never ask a platoon of Marines to take a vote on whether to take a hill a business would never take a vote where you include the janitors and the cashiers about what products to bring online. Uh, one of the reasons why the New York Times is turning into this mess that it is, is they have this weird form of internal slack democracy right. where people, you know, people who are part of the truck driving union get to express themselves about what the op-ed page should, should do or say. And the homeowners association point and, and zoning stuff in general and a lot of local education stuff is a good example of how, and Jim Crow, frankly, in its time was, a good example about how local democratic polities can come up with really suboptimal bad policies that reward stakeholders and punish outsiders. And um, and you could see how a benign, wise philosopher king at the local level would be better for setting policies for homeowners associations or whatnot. Yeah, uh, I, I I think that's right, but you know there is I would say the 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 libertarian form of the skepticism of democracy is rooted in the argument that it's just not very good government. It it results in poor outcomes, and I think that's true, and it just doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. I, I I I think that ultimately the 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 purpose of our kind of government is not optimal public policy nearly as much as it is social peace in mm-hmm. a diverse society. And you also want to be able to solve problems. And, you know, 
oftentimes the best way to solve problems is to empower people to make choices for themselves. That's actually how I think about public policy. That's how we should improve the education system or the healthcare system. But what our political system exists to help us do is is live with one another in a diverse society in a peaceful way. And democracy is part of how it does that. It's not the only part of how it does that, but it's a very important part, and it's it's crucial to the legitimacy of the outcome. But yeah, it ends up with some pretty poor governing choices. There's no way around that. Not always, but but often enough. Um, all right, we don't have a lot of time left, and I did want to get to some of this stuff. Um, I and I'm not going to put you crazily on the spot or anything like that, but um, I, I had a passing comment on a solo podcast recently about how we should do a whole podcast on, on Straussianism. And I'm not going to make you carry all that load here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're not allowed to talk about this, right? Well, I know, I know. I mean, it's like, th- th- this is why I'm doing this away from my actual home. So the satellite can't find me. Um, but you are not, you are not, I believe an actual Straussian. Or is that is correct? Well, look in in my so I I I I have a PhD in political philosophy for my sins and from the University my, of Chicago from the University of Chicago and um, my teachers certainly are people who learned a lot from Strauss, um, including in some cases directly as students of Strauss. I would say that people like that in my generation tend not to understand ourselves as Straussians. Um, Leo Strauss died in 1973. Uh, That's before I was born. And I think at some point, even the the mode of reading texts and the way of thinking about the problems of the West and the way of thinking about political philosophy that owes so much to Strauss um, has to has to somehow be understood apart from a school built up around Strauss himself. So I can think of a lot of people in my generation of of scholars who um, learned how to read texts in political philosophy in a Straussian way, but who aren't best understood as Straussians. Um, They're not really continuing the work that he started exactly. Um, And so I think you'd find less people my age, and I'm 44, and certainly less fewer people, um, you know, much younger than that, who are getting their degrees now, who would describe themselves as Straussians, even if their teachers are. But they're they're political theorists who are who take texts seriously, who try to approach them by asking, what if this actually means what it says, um, and what's the best way to understand what it says. Uh, and who are resistant to th- the pull of a kind of historicism that says everything is relative to its circumstances and best understood in a cynical way as a function of interests, um, and who take the, the core challenge of political philosophy to be a, 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 a question about um, the, the, the nature of justice and the best regime that's best understood by exposure to classical texts. Um, those people could easily be called Straussians. I think they're, they're less likely now to call themselves Straussians. Um, a lot of them also now are um, a certain kind of social conservative, tend to be religious, Catholic, which Strauss was not. Um, and 
you know, th- that means that that culture has taken on a, a life and direction of its own, which makes a lot of sense to me. And in which reading Strauss is still important if you're going to understand it, but I think it's not the most important thing. So fewer people now would say they're Straussians, but I wouldn't say that um, th- that Strauss has lost his influence on that little world. Now, I would say one other thing, Jonah. I, I think that, you know, we in this little circle, um, I- in some ways are too much a, a part of the right's self-understanding of its uh, of, of its intellectual life. The contemporary right in, the, in its intellectual elite has too many political theorists, mm-hmm. too many economists, and too few historians and sociologists. And it shows. We treat every question as a regime question. Um, and too rarely do we think in terms of social formation and historical patterns. And I would tell you that some of my own work in the last 15 years has been an attempt to try to teach myself sociology on the fly um, and to think more in terms that, um, that, that take the formation of the human person seriously and not just in terms of regime and political theory. Um, and somewhere in the middle there, I, I think there's a lot to be learned about contemporary America. Yeah. I, I- it's fine. I was, I was going to end up asking you. I just wanted to like clear the air about whether or not you were a Straussian, and then you just took it and we went with it, which is good. Um, it's a classic Straussian strategy to just talk <laughs> your way out of a question you're not allowed to answer. Um, on this historicism thing, um, and let me say, I, I I am with you. Like when I did, when I wrote liberal fascism, one of the things I was very much about making arguments or inferences from questions of ideological point of view. And one of the things I tried to do in Suicide of the West was correct for that by saying, no, actually there was this other stuff going on and human nature is actually much more important than what they said during the French Revolution. And uh, I still believe that ideas are hugely important, but I think that they are often lagging indicators rather than leading indicators and that people grab them they, like, they, they pluck ideas out of the air for more conventional political and sociological uh, agendas and, and will to power. And they say, oh, I'm flying under this flag, but really it's just the flag that they think it will get them through the most doors. Um, but all that said, you know, I had Vin, our mutual friend Vin Canato on recently, and he kind of weirdly just kept going at political scientists. And it was only afterwards that he explained to me that he was basically subtweeting Straussians who rail on and on about historicism. And he thinks that historians, that there's a role for historicism. And we should explain to listeners what historicism is in this context. It's basically just this idea that you can only understand a society or a country or culture by understanding it in its moment and in its historical context. And, um, and if you take that to extreme, like the German historicists do, it means that there are no universal ideas or principles. It's just all simple relativism and context yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And it was the historicists, in fact, fun trivia, who came up with the label, the Austrian school, because the Austrians stood athwart all of that. Um, isn't there a place? I mean, it sort of sounds like that's what your answer is because you were uh, just talking about how you're moving towards sociology and history. 
it doesn't have to be either or, does it? Right. I think hi history and historicism are not the same thing. Um, and the problem with historicism, and here I, I, I think I am very much a Straussian, the, the problem with historicism is in the notion that there are not permanent principles to which politics has to answer. And I think there are. I think there are permanent principles uh, 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 best understood as principles of justice or as, as natural law or natural right. And these are different things, but th 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 to which politics has to answer in any time. And that's part of the reason why it's helpful now to learn about justice from Plato and Aristotle, even though they lived a long time ago in a very different set of circumstances. There are still things about which they are right and about which they, th their debates are deeply informative and, and, and formative. So it, in that sense, I think real historicism is profoundly wrong. Mm -hmm. and leads to a kind of relativism that is, in fact, corrosive of, of any mode of justice and of any society we would want to live in. Um, I think that there's a way, though, that, that maybe Strauss or maybe some of his students um, took that question of whether um, of the tension between historicism and a kind of philosophical rationalism to be the defining question, uh, not only in the history of, of political philosophy, but in, in the politics of any society. They, in a sense, imposed the kind of German framework on, among other things, our thinking about American politics. I am inclined to a more English framework that says that the defining tension in our politics is between two understandings of liberalism one of which says liberalism is the application of, um, of enlightenment principles that point toward egalitarianism and that the purpose of politics is to apply those more and more completely until we get to a genuinely equal society. And the other side says liberalism is the achievement of Western civilization, which over countless generations by the time of the enlightenment arrived at an extraordinary balance between freedom and order and that balance needs to be preserved, conserved, and built on. And the tension between right and left is a tension between these two ideas of what liberalism is, one of which is progressive and radical, the other of which is, is conservative. I think that framework is more like what the American founding worked in. I think that the, 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 the mode of thought that's articulated by Burke and by Paine and by Jefferson um, tells us more about contemporary political life than the more Germanic mode of thought that tends to think in terms of nihilism and, uh, and, and philosophical rationalism. And so uh, th that difference, which in some ways is you know, a kind of East-West difference among the Straussians, at least that's one way to understand that difference, um, I think is actually fairly important in understanding some of the divisions now in that, in that little world. But I would say, I think they're right about the problems with historicism, but that doesn't mean that we don't benefit from history. And I, you know, I, I think confounding the two doesn't really make sense. And the attack on historicism is not an attack on historians, at least not on history properly understood, it seems to me. Yeah, because it always seemed to me, it took me a while to figure this out when I started doing deep dives about, you know, the 
German historicists and their influence on American progressives and, you know, all these guys who went off, you know, at the, in the post-Civil War, pre-progressive era, something like 6,000 PhDs went to Germany, uh, or students went to Germany to get their PhDs and came back and they created Johns Hopkins, the, which was a German model yeah. school. That's where Dewey learned and Wilson and yada, yada, yada. We know all that. And, and the, 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 the problem that Straussians have with historicism as it, as I often read it never made too much sense to me because my understanding of what Straussianism was, was that you had to do this amazingly deep scholarly dive into the text to understand the, the, the context of what these writers were trying to say at the time they were trying to say it and who they were speaking to and all this kind of stuff. And if you listen to what the historicists say, that's what they're trying to do with the society. They're trying to treat a society like a text and understand it in its context. I'm with you about the relativism stuff. I mean, and that's yeah, where it goes I, too far. I, I think there's a way that this, the Straussian argument is more like that there is a there's a timeless space in which the greatest thinkers are talking to each other. There, there's the most accessible form of this is a little essay that Leo Strauss wrote about liberal education. He gave us a speech sometime in the 1950s. Uh, you can find it in one of the collections of his essays. But I, I would say there's a sense that there's this there's this timeless place where the really great political thinkers, and there are very few of them, are engaged with each other in a debate about fundamental principles, not about uh, ephemeral historical factors. Um, it's a little bit like how T.S. Eliot thinks about, about the canon, the tradition and the art. Um, and that is different. That is different from any kind of historical framework that says, first, you have to understand the context, and then you can make sense of what people are saying. Um, I, I, I just think that tension doesn't explain as much as it might about contemporary American challenges, because it suggests that the problem is nihilism and relativism. And I don't think that's the problem we face now. Um, I think we face a problem of radicalism, which is not devoid of confidence in its moral vision. It has, if anything, too much confidence in a, a deformed moral vision. And, it, uh, and so even a, a, a great work that kind of explicates this view with relation to contemporary America, like The Closing of the American Mind, which is a very worthwhile book, that book says the problem is relativism on campus. I think on the contemporary campus, the problem is not best understood as relativism. It's not totally unconnected to it, but uh, you know, you almost wish that today's left on campus was relativistic. They're actually intensely moralistic in a way that turns them into tyrants. And we have to see why radicalism can be a problem and has to be answered by a kind of moderation rather than just seeing why relativism is a problem and therefore has to be answered by uh, kind of rationalism. These are different things. They're connected, but they're different. But I mean, isn't there a process here? I mean, um, the critique of relativism and nihilism and all of these things was, as I always understood it, partly, you know, as C.S. Lewis said, you're going to breed a generation of men without chests. And then, or as, as Nietzsche would put it, you get the last man and then you get, uh, you know, uh, you get Donald Trump. I mean, to yeah. be blunt about yeah. it, right? And you get people who are so nihilistic that they crave meaning. They crave a man on the white horse. They crave, you know, Napoleon at Jenna or whatever it was that 
that that Hegel talked about, and um, and they inv- and I think one of the reasons why Trump is such an interesting casting for that role <laughs> is that the only way you can see him as a great man of history is by projecting it upon him. There is nothing in the clay itself that lends itself to that role, and. What is fascinating to me as a historical, you know, uh, surprise is the some of the people most dedicated to making him this world historical statesman were precisely some of the Straussians who had been warning about the dangers of relativism and nihilism. Yeah, yeah. I look. I agree with that. I I think that the one thing that didn't need to be projected is a willingness to to articulate a rejection and resentment of the 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 power of the left and the and a certain kind of elitism um and i you know i think that's a lot of what was appealing to a lot of people about what trump had to offer um it was to get us back to where we started in a sense it, it, it was that he expressed the the alarm they had about the direction of elites in our society, and he didn't actually express it. I mean, if you if you listen to what he actually said, it's not what they were saying, but he spoke for a certain kind of alarm and resentment that I do think was real for a lot of people. Uh, beyond that, there's an awful lot of projection onto Trump of all sorts of things that couldn't possibly be related to what he was doing and saying. So on, 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 on that note, um, we're recording this on Thursday morning. There are all these quotes coming out about uh, from, I'm losing track of all the Trump books, but I think it's the, the I Alone Can Fix It book by the Washington Post reporters that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Millie, was saying how he, he was seriously concerned about a, a I think he calls it a Reichstag moment and that these were brown shirts outside the Capitol and, and all of these kinds of things. And as, as flawed or not flawed as you may or may not think about the historical parallels and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, I just, I, I'm just wondering about a, a more basic question. These books are going to keep coming, right? And future historians are going to sift through all of it and we're going to get emails that get declassified and, you know, we're going to have oral histories and whatnot. Is there a future 25 years from now? And I say this as someone who's jealously guarding the, the remnant audience here. <laughs> um, uh, is there a future in which you see historians rehabilitating or validating what Trump was doing? Is there a future where the people who, um, and I don't want to name names because we have too many, you know, uh, uh, tribal family ties and all of this stuff, but the people who, who bent over backwards um, in the intellectual realm, the way Rudy Giuliani did in the political realm, um, is, is there a way where history looks kindly at any of this in ways that I cannot imagine? I mean, because it just seems to me that there's, there's never going to be a huge overflowing of evidence that really validates the Trumpian MAGA project in any grand way um, that matters. And I'm just wondering if, if, if you think 
are there places in the past where that someone would have said that kind of thing about Harry Truman or something and then be proven a, a fool? Um, I'm, where do you think this yeah, looks I, like? I, I certainly don't know, but I think that in some ways the hardest thing to to get our head around when we think about what history will think of our time is that it will be understood in light of what comes after it, which mm-hmm. is just always true. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm sure that a lot of events and developments in in the Truman era seemed like they would be decisive in how future historians thought about the Truman era. But in fact, it turns out that the way we think about it has more to do with a few big forces that ended up being decisive in what came after. Um, And we don't know what will come after. And so uh, it is certainly possible that the Trump era comes to be seen as as transitional. um, And as I would say, it, it likely will be seen as the end of something more than the beginning of something. And, you know, historians will have more to say about the, the phase that is beginning than, uh, than the details of intellectual fights around Trumpism. And we just don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it's possible for us to say how uh, all these things will be understood. All we can do in real time is try to be honest and try to be thoughtful and try to figure out, uh, try to figure our way through uh, a, 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 a a kind of thicket of difficult challenges. And, you know, we can hope that that then becomes worthy of a story and saying that you got something right. But um, that can't be how we think about it in the present because we don't know what what we're at the beginning of uh, at any given time. I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, impossible I, I, to live that way. I'm totally with you with the sort of Solzhenitsyan point of let the lie come into the world, but not through me. Uh, and, you know, telling the truth is its own defense and all that kind of thing. I do think, though, that there is something healthy for a society in thinking about uh, letting your concerns about how you'll be viewed historically, even though we're all forgotten in the long run yes. and all that kind of stuff. There is value to that. Right. I mean, that's what yes. Newstat argues about in for one of the major constraints on conventional presidents is how they'll be remembered by history. And um, yes. I, you know, there's a wonderful book called Fame and the Founding Fathers by Douglas Adair that really makes this argument about how important it was that 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 Washington and Adams and, and Hamilton actually did think about what future generations would think about them and how that kept them from making reckless choices in most cases. I, I agree. I think that matters. But we can't really know how they'll sure. think of us. So, yeah, we, we always have to be... Uh, I, I think it always makes sense to live at the very least as if y- your children are watching yeah. um, and, you know, in such a way as to make them m- more proud than ashamed of what you do. But, you know, that doesn't answer itself. That still requires a judgment about what is the right thing to do in the moment. And, uh, you know, th- there are some serious disagreements right now about what that looks like. I, I, t- I take them seriously. Um, all right. Last question. Fine. We don't know what historians are going to say, but in that timeless astral plane where the great thinkers are debating these things, which you still have a ticket to be part of that, you know, um, I'm not saying that you'll be in the center ring with with Aristotle or Socrates, but, you know, um, uh, but uh, what are, what are they saying about this moment? I mean, like, I mean, how how well are we 
conforming to notions of eternal notions of of justice and 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 decency and 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 in a properly formed society well look i i think that one of the great virtues of uh of american society and of in, in some ways of liberalism broadly is that it is willing to indulge in an obsession with its own vices um it's very open to self-criticism that's not the greatest virtue of American civilization, but it is a great virtue. And we do it, we're doing it now. We're in a moment of self-criticism where almost all we have to say is about what's wrong with our country from one direction or another, whether that's accusing the left of various things or whether that's accusing the right of various things. Um, we, we find ourselves as a society unequal to the task that uh, that we understand ourselves to be pursuing. I think that can go too far. The United States is a very impressive country. It is living through a series of challenges that are you know, significant, but I don't know that there's any country in the world you'd rather be in this moment than the United States. China has much bigger problems ahead of it than we do. Europe has much bigger problems ahead of it than we do. Um, and it's not by coincidence. It's because we are a country that keeps itself in balance, um, that cares about equality and freedom and justice, and that also is extremely good at the practical tasks of, of freedom and prosperity. Um, and so I, I, what I worry about now is that we're not giving our children enough reasons to be proud of what they're inheriting. And there are a lot of reasons to be proud. There are certainly a lot of problems to fix, but there are a lot of reasons to think that this is the best place to be and quite possibly the best time to be. Um, so, you know, uh, how are we doing in comparison to uh, the universal standard of justice? I, I, think we're, I, I, I think we always have work to do in living up to that standard, but we take that to be our work to a greater degree than almost any society in the, in the history of humanity. And I'm proud of that. I think we all should be. All right, we could do this all day. And in fact, um, if, you, if anybody ever stopped by and just walked the halls of AI, this is literally what every conversation is like. <laughs> Um, just occasionally punctuated with what's for lunch today. And then it's back to the timeless realm of great thinkers and the, uh, in the, the veil of ignorance and all of these various other questions. Um, Yuval, thank you so much for doing this. I didn't properly introduce you in the beginning other than to say that you were my taskmaster, but you are the director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Yep. And um, we'll put all the books and whatnot um, in your, your, uh, your flamenco dancing videos uh, in the show notes. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming. All right. So uh, Yuval Levin has left the, uh, the, the, the timeless space where we conducted our conversation. I, I'm going to start using timeless space uh, more often. Um, and uh, curious what people think about all that. And I will have thoughts on it. I want to cogitate and ruminate on it. I will have thoughts on all that in the solo podcast. But again, um, you know, I, uh, I just like listening to you all. There's something profoundly reassuring that the world still produces people like you all. Um, he is 
he's younger than me, but his soul is much older than mine. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, let me know what you think about all this. Please, if you can, subscribe. Uh, become a paid member of the Dispatch. Uh, we're going to do a big growth push come the fall. We just threw, there's all sorts of data and mutual experience between Steve and I that says trying to do this kind of thing in the summer doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, people are, and I, and although none of us have any experience with the pandemic, um, it seems to me that people are even more scattered, um, post pandemic, but come the fall, uh, we really want to get on a growth binge and it'd be great if we could, uh, you know, start the incredibly ascendant hockey stick growth, um, of membership starting right now. So if you're, uh, uh, a listener to the remnant. If you're a reader of the the free G file, um, and you want uh, to get more of all of that kind of stuff, if you want to support what we're doing, uh, really appreciate it. If you could um, become a paid member, also if if you're already a member or if you're not ready to do that for whatever reason, uh, if you can give us some, give this podcast some nice reviews at the various places where you get your podcasts, that's helpful too. I've I stopped asking for that stuff for the most part. I know a lot of my friends, even some of my colleagues do a lot of that. Maybe I should do more. I don't know. Um, um, frankly, I would rather uh, have everyone put their energies into, you know, getting me on the Conan O'Brien podcast. But uh, if you can't do that, uh, you know, giving us a nice rating at iTunes or uh, Google Play, Stitcher, etc., that's useful too. And uh, um, anybody who's suffering from DC type heat or West Coast heat, stay cool. Other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.